it's okay to be the one that's managing in the trenches, but you have all of these other things around you that need to be done that you can let other people do. If you can let go, Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant and educator, a caregiver support group leader, and an international presenter on how to respond to dementia behaviors. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two because we all know laughter is the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. No, 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 I won't forget your grape juice. I appreciate that. (laughs) So we've talked a few times in the past about why you wrote your books on dementia, um, and it was to help others understand what it's really like. Absolutely. And with people being diagnosed with one or more forms of dementia every 66 seconds, according to the Alzheimer's Organization, There are new people coming into this world every single day. So the more information we can put out there for them, the better off we all are. And that brings us to today's guest, who's not a nurse who writes, but a writer who happens to be a nurse. She uses her skills and experience to create stories that bear witness to the humanity in all of us. With more than 20 years experience as a staff nurse and case manager, She's worked with countless families dealing with issues related to aging, elder care, and Alzheimer's. She is the co-founder and director of All's Authors, Marianne Shuko. Welcome, Marianne. Hi, Bobby. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for inviting me to your show. Oh, we're absolutely thrilled to have you here. And one of the ways that we connect with caregivers is through storytelling. And I have been a storyteller since I was eight years old. <laughs> and continue to do that now. Um, And I know that our listeners appreciate hearing stories of others who are walking this path. Um, Can you tell us about your personal caregiving experience and also share with our listeners some of the stories that you think will be most helpful and interesting to them? Okay. Well, my um, caregiving story started out professionally because I'm a registered nurse. And I worked in both nursing nursing homes and in hospital settings for about 20 years or so. And one of the things I found in my experience is that I really enjoyed caring for dementia patients. So I do have a lot of experience working with them and with their families because it's like a package deal. So all of that led me to write a book a novel based on my experiences called Blue Hydrangeas, an Alzheimer's love story. And that was inspired by a lovely woman that I met at work one day who was uh, 86. She had dementia, Alzheimer's, and she was in the hospital because she had fallen and broken her pelvis. And the plan was for her to go to a nursing facility for some extended rehab. She was in an acute rehab and now she was going into a more of a uh, long-term rehab. So um, I went into the room just to meet with her and her husband. He happened to be there to go over the discharge plan for the following day. And their son was there as well. And he asked me if it were possible for him to 
drive his mom over to the facility instead of sending her off in an ambulance or some kind of medical transportation. And I said, you know, that's fine. We, we can arrange for that. And he said, please don't allow my parents to leave here without me, which was kind of an interesting request. But then I knew that the two of them, they had driven up from the state of Florida to New York all by themselves oh without any mishap. So they were capable of, of making a journey. And I guess he was afraid that maybe dad wouldn't fulfill the plan. Maybe he would just bring her home and that wouldn't have been a good good move because she wasn't fully ambulatory. So after I left them that day, I went home and I was thinking about them and she was so beautiful and um, sweet. And her husband, he was also uh, quite a character. And I started thinking, well, what would happen if they did did leave the hospital without their son? Where would they go? What would they do? And so that became the um, basis of my book. So the book was um, inspired by this couple. But when I started writing it, I wanted to include more and more couples and stories and families that I had encountered. So I created the character of Jack, who is the husband. So the story is told from the point of view, primarily of the, the husband, not the wife. Because usually the when people think of caregivers, they think of women. But I knew that there were many, many men who were also caring for their wives at home and doing a great job. So I wanted to expose that. And I wanted to also uh, do a little bit of education, um, what it is like to have the disease. So there are some chapters about that with Sarah's point of view, but also kind of what Jack was going through as a caregiver, trying to get information, the changes that came into their lives, fighting against those changes, trying to make adaptations at home to, in order to keep her home because that was his promise that she would stay home. And I know that that's a promise that a lot of people make. And in the beginning, I think that's kind of seems reasonable, but as the disease progresses, it can become more and more unreasonable, which is what happens in this story. I'm glad that you brought that out because, you know, we often tell people if you haven't made that promise, don't. But if you have, understand that it means that you're promising they'll get the best possible care. And sometimes you have to make, you have to be strong enough to make the hard decision to put them in a place where it's best and you're not abandoning them. You're their advocate, their family member. And sometimes um, it works to the benefit of both. Absolutely, because Jack experiences a complete breakdown because of the burden of caregiving. Not that she's a burden, because she's not. He loves her, but it's just having to manage every aspect of their lives without her help. And he, in the meantime, is aging as well. His health is deteriorating. And it just reaches this crescendo of a catastrophe where it's no longer really possible for him to continue in that. And in the story, they own a bed and breakfast and it's a really big house and it's got stairs and 12 rooms. And so it's not, you know, uh, a typical situation, but they have a big property to maintain. Of course it's closed. So he struggles with that for nine years and then he, you know, has no more choice, but to have her place in a, in an assisted living facility at the time. And I'm not going to give away the ending because that would be a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So basically, this is a work of fiction based on a true story or, or inspired by a true story. Now, going back to you had mentioned that you were um, a, a writer who, li- who is also a nurse, um, you had mentioned that you like working with dementia patients and the families. Um, can you give us a little, and our listeners, a little insight into what it's like on that side of the fence, working with the patients and working with the families, as opposed to a lot of times we talk to caregivers and we, we hear from the caregiver side. So um, in a situation like that, the first con- point of contact is the patient who could be in the hospital for any kind of reason usually because of an illness or they've had an in, some kind of injury, something's not right at home. And then the family also comes in because now they're, they're obviously part of the discharge plan. And what I would encounter in many cases is families that were completely over their head and weren't tapping into the resources that were available to them. So in most well, where I live in New York State, there are a lot of resources. And then I think across the country, people can find different agencies to help them, whether it's the Alzheimer's Association, Office to Elder Care, home care agencies. I mean, there's a lot of assistance out there. But what I learn is caregivers are usually just too busy and overwhelmed just trying to get through every minute of the day that they don't have time to investigate all of that and to find out what is available in my community. That was certainly our situation because like so many caregivers, I walked into it not knowing what I was getting into, not knowing what it was the day-to-day caring for somebody with these multiple problems was going to be like and had no idea even where to look for help until he ended up, uh, well, he came to live with us and we were dealing with the VA hospital because that's where he got most of his care. And then there were several layers of care because he had mental problems and he had physical problems and he had heart issues and we had multiple doctors. And a lot of times they weren't talking to one another. Um, I think one of the best things that happened was the day that I walked into the hospital and there was a man standing outside his door in um introduced himself as a social worker and said, Mrs. Carducci, do you need help? And (laughs) apparently I looked desperate enough that they were sending somebody to look for me. And I would hate to have other caregivers have to be in that position when there are so many resources available. Yeah. And and unfortunately, the knee-jerk reaction to that question, Bobby, is no, I don't need help. I'm fine. Everything's fine. fine. And then kind of when that person wanders away, okay, then the person might kick themselves and say, wait a minute, you know, well, what am I doing I was, here? I need help. I was desperate enough to say, yeah, what you got for me. <laughs> no. But it took, it took years for me to get there. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I often encountered resistance when I would propose some sort of help or whatever to a family and they didn't even want to hear about it. Some people might consider it that it's like some kind of a personal failing or some kind of judgment on the level of care that they're providing. And sometimes it is, but um, 
mainly if it's your goal that you want to care for your loved one and have them at home, then you will need help. You're not going to get around that unless you've got a huge family where everybody gets along and they all live nearby. And a lot of people don't have that. So, honey, tell her what you tell people um, to say when somebody says, do you need help? Oh, I, I tell people always never say that you're fine because we're not fine. We're tired. We're frustrated. We're lonely. Um, we're confused. We're, we're never fine when we're in this in this situation. Um, so what I learned through making every mistake you can possibly make as a caregiver was when somebody says, do you need help? You give them a job. And it may not be being in your home actually doing the care for the person uh, with dementia, but it could be um, having your teenagers come over and cut the grass or get somebody to inspect your car for you or go to the grocery store for you or just sit with, with your loved one for 15 minutes so you can take a shower. But there's always something that's that somebody can do. And while it's true that some people say, do you need help or let me know if you need help, who do it only because it's polite. There are plenty of people who do that because they don't know how they can help you. And if we say that we're fine, then we're missing an opportunity to let somebody do what they are capable of doing. Yes, that's very good advice. And another thing I think people may not often realize is, especially in later life, people who are retired, for example, they're looking for things to do. They want to be helpful because it fulfills their day. So if you send somebody on a task, you might be actually helping them more than they're helping you because they have time on their hands. They want to be useful. So you should be able to identify those people in your life. We all know the people that are busy all the time and into everything. And those are the kind of people that, you know, they say, if you want something done, ask a busy person. So you um, should look for those people in, in your life and, and don't be afraid to ask if they can do something for you, but give them a specific task. I think one of the things that, that hold us back and it definitely held me back, even with Mike, was I knew the routine and I had whatever limited control you can have over that situation. And it was difficult for me to let go of that hands-on care. But he did the grocery shopping and he ran the errands and he did those things. Um, so I did have that support. But we have to let caregivers know it's okay to be the one that's managing in the trenches, but you have all of these other things around you that need to be done that you can let other people do. If Now, if you can let go, like you said, if you had that wonderful family where everybody got along and everybody was helping one another, um, they could do the day-to-day -day care, but a lot of times they can't. And unfortunately, families um, often don't get along and uh, can be uh, not helpful and actually disrupt what's going on. Yes. Everybody who in the situation has their own agenda, has their own place. And sometimes they don't always mesh because you may have siblings who are in denial and they don't want to acknowledge what's going on, or they have their own idea of what should be done and how to do it. And there's a lot of friction. So um, that usually leaves one person being like in control 
and they don't want to give up their control. You know, you have a nice arrangement going on in a routine. And then if somebody disrupts it, then it can take days or even weeks to put it back together again. So it creates a lot of stress. We definitely experienced that with my dad. There was a couple of times we did uh, respite care for my dad so we could have some downtime and um, take some time. And uh, there was always a price to pay for going outside of the routine. It was almost like I was being punished. And, you know, he always said that he he didn't mind going into respite care, you know, through the VA hospital. We had a certain number of days that we could admit him um, for respite care. But he was, he would all not only get out of his routine, he was very sly in dealing with people who wasn't, who weren't aware of how he could manipulate them. Um, He would tell them, go and take care of the sick people. I'm fine. And he would hide symptoms and he would hide medications. Um, So when he got home and he had to get back into a a regular schedule, he was not happy. Part of the issue with that is the fact that he was removed from his home. I think today we would try to have respite care at home to provide as little disruption as possible. One of the worst things to do with a person with dementia is to change their environment because they're they're used to things being the way that they are. And if they're in a new environment or if you change the environment, then that just throws them, you know, off in a new direction. They have a hard time getting back. That's an excellent point. I have a story about that. Um, A family I knew when mom became um, ill with Alzheimer's and the father was failing in their 90s, the children stepped in to manage them and to manage their affairs. And one of the first things they wanted to do was make some home improvements that involve things like um, bringing in a bulldozer and tearing up the garden, the garden the mother had put in for decades. Oh my. And build, rebuilding the breezeway. The little room, they had a little sunroom, screened in room that was, they loved very much, but it needed some changes. It was in disrepair. So they thought they were helping but the mother was out of her mind seeing the ruin of her garden and seeing the upheaval that went into that whole project. And it was kind of like, that's not a good idea to do that now. And it created a lot of stress and strain on not only on the family, but for her as well. It was very upsetting. So you think we're doing what's right. Uh, even changing somebody's room, for instance, if you have somebody who their whole life, their bedroom was upstairs, but now you have make a decision they're going to be moved to a room downstairs for their safety. Now that's really going to mess with their head because they're not used to that. It's kind of, it's very difficult. And we do know that um, routine was extremely important to Mike's dad almost all of his life. You know, things had to be done at a certain time and and in a certain way. Um, But where I was going with it, that he he was a paranoid schizophrenic even before he got dementia. So um, he was suspicious of anything and everything. And also very, uh, for lack of a better word, sneaky. Even at home, you know, he would be peering over the um, banister to see what, what people were doing. Um, he would pretend to take his medication. He would hide things. Um, 
So yeah, it makes perfect sense now that you're pointing it out to me. We would have better been better off having somebody come into the house because adding that to people who didn't know, um, like I said, how manipulative he could be. And he's not the only one with dementia who can be very manipulative. Putting him in a setting where he thought he could pull the wool over somebody's eyes was was a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah, and not only that, let's face it, nurses are way understaffed and way overused. And who gets the oil but all the squeaky wheels? And if there's a wheel that's not squeaking, you you pay attention to the other ones more than you pay attention to somebody like him. That's not a criticism. It's just the fact of life. <laughs> it is. And the other side of that is when you do have somebody like a dementia patient who is uncontrollable and disruptive. Now, they consume all of the nurse's attention right. and energy. I mean, and then the other patients who are have other illnesses that require care, they they get pushed back. And we would encounter that a lot. When many times you have to call up a family member and say, you need to get get in here and sit with your mom or your dad because we the nurses can't sit with them the whole time. That is something that I would do. Um, I would go in every every morning for breakfast and stay all day through dinner until it was time to settle down for the night. Um, because of that. And I think it, whether he wanted to verbalize it or not, he appreciated my, my being there. But a lot of times it was a lot of quiet hours. Um, and as always with him, whenever he was willing to talk, I was willing to listen. Um, but not everybody's in a position where they can go in there and they can sit in. I even had a doctor ask me one time, do you ever go home? But because, you know, he had swallowing issues, he had severe dysphagia. And when you go into a hospital setting, very often they just, they bring you a meal. And at first, and they're not aware, you know, that it should have been pureed or that. And he, he would eat it and he would choke. And so just for his own safety and also to help out the nurses, because I truly appreciate the medical personnel and how busy they are. I did everything I could to be there all day, every day, but certainly not everybody can do that. People have to work, they have children, um, they have jobs, they have other things. Um, so thank God for you and all the other nurses. Yeah, I encountered that many times. Well, that's how I met some of the people that you know inspired my story because they were there caring while the person was also in the hospital to get medical care or nursing care for an acute problem. So it's a completely different situation. Many people sometimes, though, they think that it's a period of respite for them. And there have been people that don't even show up till it's time to bring that person home. Yes. Yes. Which, you know, is a problem on many, many levels. And I even experienced that with like new parents within newborns in the hospital because they have some kind of whatever RSV, like a respiratory infection or whatever. And the new parents would be so exhausted. They'd just be home and they wouldn't come for days. It's like, you don't leave your newborn unattended in a hospital. You shouldn't leave your parent with Alzheimer's or dementia alone in a hospital either. Hospitals are not safe. Right, right. People think that they're safe. Hospitals, not only are they full of germs and illness that you can easily pick up, but, you know, elderly people and people with dementia are not safe in a hospital because nobody's watching them 
24-7. I think now, it's a fallacy that people believe that. Right. Now, just to take a brief aside as we begin to wind down, um, you're saying that, you know, somebody with dementia shouldn't be left alone in a hospital, but now with COVID, family members are being kept out and being kept out of uh, care homes as well, which is very disturbing for the dementia patient um, and can have long-term repercussions. And as things are beginning to ramp up again with these variants, we're seeing that happening again. Um, I know you can't solve it, but what suggestion would you have for somebody who has someone in that position? Um, I tell them, you know, tell them that you're an essential caregiver and that person cannot be left alone without a family member there. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But we've been working with an organization to get a certification for an essential caregiver because somebody with dementia should never be left alone um, in a hospital situation or something like that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it only benefits everybody, including the staff and the facility, because it can help prevent accidents occurring that could become unpleasant for them. But in the face of COVID, not only is, you know, the caregivers aren't allowed in there, but they're so short staffed. I mean, they're usually short staffed on the best day. That's my experience on their best day. They don't have enough staffing. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's a problem. And I haven't seen any data about, you know, increased accidents or injuries during this last year and a half due to the fact of people being left on their own without family members to take, take care of them or look after them in, in a facility or especially in a hospital. So that would be an interesting study to look at. And I'm sure somebody's working on it. <laughs> but I would just suggest, you know, the, the family members need to just stay in touch with the nursing staff as much as they can without, you know, disrupting them and letting them know that even if I'm physically not there, I'm still here. But right. it's really not, that's not even enough because the person doesn't understand why does my family not come anymore? They don't know there's a pandemic. Right. Or don't understand it. Yeah. And, they don't get it. Yeah. They just think that you don't come anymore. Even if they don't know who you are, there's, they You're know somebody when somebody's paying attention to them. Now right. nobody's paying attention to me. Well, Marianne, it's been an absolute joy having you on the, on the show. I'm sure our listeners got a lot out of uh, our conversation. I hope so. Yes, we definitely appreciate your being here. And, you know, you and I stay in touch as we typically do. So, again, thank you so much. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Well, I think Marianne offered, uh, you know, a, a lot of information to our listeners today. And, you know, a light bulb went off in my head when, you know, I was talking about our hospice situation and respite that... It probably wasn't doing any of us any good to to move your dad out of the house. But at the time, that's what we had available. Right. And uh, we desperately needed it. So I'm, I'm really glad that it was there. And perhaps now, I mean, it's been a number of years. Maybe the people at the uh, Veterans Hospital understand that as well and, and send people into the home. I mean, eventually they did do that for us when he was in in-home hospice. Well, one of the things... Um that stuck with me, and it was there at the very end, 
where she said, even if you can't be there, stay in touch with the nursing staff and stay in communication um, as best you can. And that is so true. You don't want your loved one to feel abandoned, so to speak. So that that kind of uh, stuck with me. And I know that there were attempts at that in some, in some facilities that worked and some they even getting the phone calls were really disrupted for the, the smaller nursing staff, but it, it never, it never hurts to let them know that you're there. And right. um, we want to say a, a big thank you to all the nurses out there and the other health professionals that are, are dealing with this other pandemic of dementia that is sweeping across the world. You can find more information about Marianne on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes, post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.